Welcome to the Space Cave, a big warg to all of you space burgers out there. And a reminder that One-Headed Beast is on Amazon Prime streaming right now. If you have that streaming service, you can watch it for free. It's a an hour-long animated stand-up special that me and a whole bunch of artists made years ago. And somehow it just became available on Amazon. And I've never done anything like this before, but I feel like I want to kind of drive up the, uh, the amount of... Um, reviews and things on it so that hopefully the algorithm recognizes it a bit more and perhaps it's helpful to it so if you leave five stars or any kind of a review and you send me like proof of that or just say you did i can't imagine anyone lying about it i will send you whatever you'd like a dvd copy of it that has a fully animated version i'll send you some stickers uh whatever you'd like let me know what you're into and i'll send you some sort of or mention your name on here who knows and uh, if, if you're looking to see more stand-up, new material from One-Headed Beast, I'll be doing a bunch of live shows coming up starting at the end of July, Houston and Austin, and then on to Denver, and then Watertown, South Dakota, of all places. That just happened recently. So go to David, davidhuntsberger.com slash shows, or even just right there on the front page, there are links to tickets. And it'll be helpful if people buy tickets ahead of time so I get an idea of who's going to be there rather than just banking on uh, people walking up the day of the show. So, if any of that sounds appealing, check out davidhuntsberger.com and check out One-Headed Beast on Amazon. Okay, the sound quality of this episode isn't my favorite. It's not terrible. It sounds a little cavernous because uh, traveling for the long weekend, I packed everything and I thought, huh, and I'll fit in this one little bag. That's great. And then when I got here, realized I was missing the XLR cables, so I had to record on the uh, stereo function. It's not really that noticeable or terrible, and if it is, I apologize. I think it adds a certain ambiance, so we're in a, a home, and you can hear it kind of uh, reverberating off the walls a little bit. We're still out here in the nether regions, the confines of deep space, removed, tucked away from all of life's scary moments especially everyone back home in California, particularly the southern part. Uh, I'm not thrilled hearing about all these earthquakes. I hope that goes away, and I hope everyone stays safe. That being said, let's tuck in, get into some hardcore chatting with a conversation um, about social work, and, and, and even more so specifically, therapy from a very interesting human being. I think you'll enjoy it. Here's part one with Rebecca Oaks. Well, we are in Duluth, and we are finally podcasting. You've already opened your summer shandy. I have. Oh, and then I just opened the Castle Cream Ale from Castle Danger, uh, which I wanted to do one from Castle Danger because they're from Duluth, and then Lina Kugel is from Wisconsin? Uh, I believe so. It's more of a, I don't know what a shandy is. It's kind of like a... It's a half lemonade, half beer. Oh, okay. It does have actual lemonade in it. Yeah. 
Right. Uh, lemonade flavor. I'm pouring some in. It's pretty early as we're doing this, <laughs> but it's that's actually like, well, it's noon. Yeah, Central Time, and the, it sounds a little tinny because I forgot my microphone cords. I brought the mics, forgot the cords, so we are in the office. It's a little uh, chambery. I hope that's not too distracting. I don't see why it would be. We'll see. And your name is Rebecca Oaks. Yes. We are ostensibly related through law, even though there's no law involved. Absolutely. And you, you're... I, people ask what you do. I go, that's works with kids. Yep. But I don't know the, the specific title, even like your program that you just did in Boston. Yep. So talk me through that. Okay. Um, well, so I went to get my undergraduate degree in social work. And then I wanted to be a therapist. And so a mental health therapist. So then I went to grad school. I got my master's degree also in social work. Mm-hmm. And then um, you take a test to show that you've learned all the necessary things. And then you... <laughs> a lot of an, tests are for that. Yes. Making sure you know the necessary, <laughs> the necessary things. Necessary things. And um, ethics, things like that. And mm-hmm. then when you're hired to do therapy, then you have supervision that happens. And you need to do about, I think it's 4,000 hours that are quote-unquote supervised. So the supervisor signs all of your stuff and you do like group supervision and individual supervision for about two years. And they're just kind of watching you interact with kids, making Mm, sure... They don't even sit in on the sessions necessarily, but they sign your documentation and then you consult with them about cases and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, what should I do here? Or here's how this went. Oh, so they're not watching, or they're not no. doing like a, an audit afterward. Where no, like, no. I oh, shook them around a little bit. Like, No, yeah, it, it's more like, um, okay, you wrote down this stuff in this note. Like, what did you actually do? Mm-hmm. How do we turn it into like therapy language? Because that's hard. When you finish your undergrad... And you're like, okay, I get the basics of social work. And then getting the graduate degree, the margin of difference within that. Like, Do you think you could have gone in and started immediately working right after undergrad? Or does the master's really prepare Um, you for the little nuance? I I wouldn't have been able to to be a therapist right away. Mm -hmm. You have to get your master's degree to do that. No, but that's what I mean, like, beyond just the education, like, intuitively or just the feeling of, like, I think I was ready, like, knowledge-wise. Knowledge-wise, no. I wouldn't have been able to. Okay. I was still incredibly anxious even when I became a therapist, which yeah. is kind of my MO anyhow. But <laughs> Well, yeah, we should talk about that too because you, we I mean and I feel like when you and I just chit-chat, yeah. that's a lot of what comes up where like, right. your own personal progression yeah and then being sort of able to not mirrored back but definitely a source of like right. familiarity for the children like, "Oh, hey, I've been yeah. through exactly this." Right. Yeah. So Okay, so then start. I'll start further back then. Um, <laughs> no, we don't have to do that. Let, no, yeah, let's get, yeah, let's good. continue with okay. you. You're getting uh, supervised. You're doing your four thousand yep. hours. Yeah, and then did you finish all that before you started the Boston program? Uh, yes. Okay, I did. So then you're fully qualified, and you're like, yep. And then you get to sign your own stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're fully licensed. You're good to go. Um, you take another test, and 
you've had 4,000 hours in however many cases. So it's kind of like, yep, you're good to go. You're on your own. You still have supervision, but not as much. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, well, seek us out if you need stuff. (laughs) So So we're like almost in a movie scene of, well, we'll be seeing you. We're always here if you need. Kind of. And you just ride off into the sunset. Sort of. It's more like... We're just two doors down, so come and get me when you need me. But yeah, similar to that. Um, And then once you've done about a year of like therapy practice after you pass that exam, Mm -hmm. then you're able to supervise other people. Oh, wow. So you move into that pretty quickly. mm -hmm, Or you can. So like at that point, you're able to, but it depends on like whether you get hired to do that or not. Is the philosophy kind of... You know, the whole, it takes a village to raise a child. Mm-hmm. Like, they're just trying to grow the village. Like, okay, well, you've, you've learned all the tools. Yeah. Now you're one of, you're one of the helpers. You're one of the Yeah, kind of. Mm-hmm. Or you could be. Good. Oh, yeah. You're, you're like, so, eligible. Eligible, yes. And then, um, so you need, like, 30 hours of, quote-unquote, like, supervision, um, continuing education units. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then you're, like definitely good to go sign on the dotted line Mm -hmm. you can supervise (laughs) so (laughs) and what are they checking with that that you just have all the specific criteria to understand any child that comes in um it's more like ethics related to supervision and stuff like that and supervising i think group practice and then individual practice and just all the different kinds of practices Mm -hmm. as far as i recall i was lucky enough to have it in my graduate program which i graduated from in 2010 so so it was built in so i didn't have to redo it because they already had it built in but a lot of people have to do it after they reach the independent licensure stage portion do you, I mean, do you ever have stuff come up where you're like, oh, I got to go two doors down and ask them. I don't know what to do. Here. Oh, yeah. Yes. What is that like? Yeah, does it feel like this is the appropriate method or do they ever go like, you're being a little too worried. You got this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Probably more when I, when I started or right before I was independently licensed mm-hmm. because now it's kind of like, no, you got this. Like you sign your own stuff. Like, yeah. And a, another big question too is like, could you defend what you did in court? Because oh, yeah. there's just such a large likelihood of me going to court at some point mm-hmm. because of the population I work with, which is like, I work with a lot of um, kids and a lot of kids that come in are like, have parents that are having difficulty with divorcing and things like that. So you could go to court for that. Yeah. And then also I work with a lot of kids in the child welfare system. And so depending on what exactly, so like the county is their guardian and taking care of them because for whatever reason they've been removed from their biological parents or adoptive parents or however however they get there and then kind of are in foster care and then decisions need to be made regarding where they're going next Mm -hmm. and so while I'm providing the therapy I am not the one that decides where they go or what happens but a lot of times I'll get called in to well I've never actually technically had to do a knock on wood but (laughs) um I know I will at some point but having you come in and talk about like have they made progress with this 
specific family or how do you think it would be if they went back to their biological parents or things yeah. like that so <clears throat> and those decision makers like when I got uh, and this is going to sound like completely tangential but I tried to fight a speeding or a, an illegal U-turn ticket mm-hmm. when I went into the traffic court the judge and the officer see each other every week yes so are you, and not that you're in that sort of authoritarian mm-hmm. position, right? but you are deciding things. And yep. so these decision makers that you would present your reporting to, yeah. yep. do you know them pretty well? Do you start to trust like, okay, yeah, I'm glad they kept the child with these people and or I'm glad they sent them here? You know, I think, so I, this is going to sound weird, but I don't get paid to have an opinion. It <laughs> sounds like sports lingo. I get paid to like clinically what things are happening and if this child were moved, like what do you think would be in their best interest? And I can say, well, typically children do well with structure, predictability, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But also with the age kids that I work with, which is typically like zero. Well, I haven't ever had a zero-year-old yet, but, you know, like two to five, mm-hmm. although some older, too. Um, Tough to counsel a zero-year-old. Yes. It's mostly work with the parents when they're <laughs> younger, but you with the kid as well. Um, but when um, you're working with them, it's kind of a question of are they able to build relationships with caregivers? Uh-oh. Because if the child is able to build a like pri- primary relationship with one person and be like, nope, you're my person, yeah, that makes it easier for them to do that later on. Doesn't that sort of stuff come up where the, the, the child has clearly been like, you're my person, the biological you know, parent mm-hmm. comes into the picture and goes, I cleaned up now. Yep. You can't take my child. Yep. And you guys have to be like, you're like two weeks sober. Let's give this some time or do you, things yeah, like that. That's not me as much. That's the social workers okay. figuring that out and being like, oh, okay, two weeks is good. You can mm-hmm. meet with the therapist. Typically then we meet with like the biological parents by themselves. Yeah. Um, because, well, typically we meet with any primary caregiver we're going to work with by themselves first. Um, after we do the diagnostic assessment where the child has to come to that. Otherwise, we don't get paid. So. Oh, okay. Um, in movies, there's always like a, it was just a system. Until mm-hmm. this person recognized and truly, you know, when you say yep. like, I'm not paid to have an opinion or yep. I'm sure there's an efficiency in like, just assess these kids, yep. move them along to where they, right. does it start to feel a little bit like next, next? And how I do mean, you balance that? I think it's more of a, I have clinical, how do I put it? Like, I have thoughts about clinically what would be helpful. Mm -hmm. And I don't just say, yep, you go back to your parents. Yep, you go back to your parents. Because I just provide my perspective of, like, here are the things that could happen if the child continues to stay with these people. And on the other hand, he's built a really good relationship with this person. And Mm -hmm. so it's hard for me to say whether it would be really, really hard or really, really hard. But then he'd be able to make another really good positive relationship with a different caregiver that was paying attention and, you know, attending to needs and things like that. I think I'm trying to think of like an analogy where, you know, if you had a farmer, a baker, and a line of people lining up to get loaves of bread. Yes. 
almost anyone involved in that could probably look and be like, this child or this family needs more bread. Yep. But if your job is not to decide that, it's yep. just make the best bread you can yep. or grow yep. it. So right. That. It's more, my job is to support the child in whatever's decided mm-hmm. is really like what it comes down to. And so I can say like, yep, he has a really good relationship with his foster parents. Like they look really good together when they're engaging in my office. Mm-hmm. And I also don't know what it would look like or I could observe you know the child and the biological parent you know in my office but also like what you see in an office is not always what you see at I was gonna ask at that. the home too yeah are, are there, so, do you get jaded by that or if they're being too like wow good job slugger and then watching the kid like little micro reactions are you do you ever formulate like I think something's going on here and do you have to be able um, to do that I think more Often than not, it's just kind of observing. I don't know if there's actually, like, anything that I'm like, ding, 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 those things are bad. <laughs> but <laughs> like I think in, yeah, it's, like, the more... Yeah, the kid would go over to a shelf and yeah. turn one thing over, and the therapist would be like, that means yeah. that this is happening at home. Yes. Like, is that, uh, can you really decide that? Well, I mean, you can draw conclusions, but they're never... It's based on what you're seeing. So it's not a like 100%, it's not like a two plus two is four always. Mm -hmm. So it's not like every time a kid plays with a knife, it means he got stabbed or something like that. Like (laughs) behaviors have multiple meanings. And so really while you're observing, it's just kind of observing. But since I've been doing it for almost five years, I can kind of tell whether there's kind of a rhythm and whether I feel like this is kind of typical or not. Um, Because if it's not, it looks kind of jerky. Mm -hmm. And are you having to do this through, because you say like you're observing, but they don't just come in, they're not like cats playing where you're just sitting there watching. You're chatting with the parents, you're chatting with the child. Do you have a clipboard? I mean, how are you? No. You don't, okay. I don't. I only have kind of the whole clipboard idea when I'm doing the diagnostic assessment, which is when I kind of write down symptoms mm-hmm. because we have to be able to give a diagnosis in order to provide treatment. So um, then, yes, it's very much a clipboard, me asking rapid fire questions of um, the parents. However, when you're working with the younger kiddos, like the two to five age range, really the way that they exist is in their relationships with primary caregivers. Mm -hmm. And so there is a saying like, there's no such thing as a baby, like because it's a baby and whoever the caregiver is Mm -hmm. because they're different in different relationships. Mm -hmm. And so it, you know, it's mostly about that we call it dyad, like the parent-child dyad in my office and kind of observing what's going on. And then it depends on kind of what my role is in that particular case and what um, evidence-based practice I'm using. Um, But it's not about me necessarily getting in there and like doing stuff. It's about encouraging and supporting the parent to be there or caregiver to be Mm -hmm. there for the child. Um, So you're on everyone's side. 
it's not like when someone comes in, even if you observe some behavior, you're like, I don't love this parenting technique. You want to offer them some guidance and yeah. or your first thought isn't like, we got to separate this. Right. Like, this is, I am not the person that goes, nope, okay, take the kid away, <laughs> like, thankfully, because yeah. I really don't want that job. Do people ever, and then you're here on behalf of yourself and I'm speaking for the place right. you work, but have you ever, do people talk about that, that people by doing this so frequently, do they get a little jaded? Do they get kind of hardened? I, I think, you know, when you work with um, populations that have high levels of what we call trauma, and there's like, Trauma can be interpreted many, many different ways, but in the way I'm talking about it now, it's things that affect someone or the child so that they have symptoms that you can directly relate to what they've experienced. Okay. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think it's harder for, like, ER doctors and things like that like I feel like they have to get kind of hardened and just like do the like triage or whatever they need to do because yeah. they're seeing these emergencies all day long yeah like every day that they do their work mm-hmm. and for me it's a little bit different because I don't always have children that have experienced trauma although that is primarily the population I work with but the different types of trauma are different like if you have a child come in that has had a history of neglect or been exposed to parental drug use it is different than if you have a child who was there when their mother was stabbed mm-hmm. or something like that yeah. like it's a different thing to try to be able to process especially because usually with like the neglect and exposed to substance use we don't have a lot of details Mm -hmm. and so it's more do you get those details from someone who was on the scene like hey we came in yeah parent was passed out on the couch a lot of time it's called um the chips petition it's uh i don't know children I don't know what the age is for in need of protective services and so like the social workers like compile all the info and then give it to the judge and the judge is like yep these children because of all these things do need to be removed or placed in a different place and then typically that has already happened by the time I see them Mm -hmm. just because the referrals don't usually come directly from um, like the social worker prior to the chips petition being made, if that makes sense. Yeah. And um, it's different because those social workers are not therapists. And so social worker can encompass many different roles and levels. Yeah. And so like my background is social work, which means that I was trained in a with a like social work lens which is kind of like looking at all these different things that affect people so Mm -hmm. like the ecological system or economic systems that affect children and also like looking at the family dynamics and looking at the school dynamics and looking at um just all these different pieces and how they interrelate together 
So it's not like you have to be up on the NASDAQ every day no. or something. But <clears throat> the strength of the dollar, the, yes. the stock exchange. Right. But when you see, you know, in a community like here where, you know, say like the the, the mining that takes place yeah. not too far from here or things that, oh, there are a bunch of layoffs. Is there a direct correlation between that and like healthy family units and functionality? Mm, there probably is. Just in the economic sense that like you were talking about, yeah. like... Well, and I think um, a lot of kids that are... Not all of them, but a lot of kids that are in the social service child welfare system are frequently lower... Um, frequently living in poverty or in, mm-hmm. and those kinds of conditions. Um, and so... I think that that definitely, I mean, when you're struggling to find a place to live or things like that, or you don't have family members that can take care of your kids, so you just are like, okay, well, I'm going to leave them with you because I think you're a good person, and then you find out later that they're not a good person. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just different because I think the people that have money and can go, all right, no, I'm going to check out 30 daycares, and I know what I want from a daycare, I know how much I want to pay, you know, mm-hmm. those kinds of things is different than, okay, well, I have two choices because I get money from the government or from whoever to help me pay for daycare so I can work. Yeah. You have less choices. You have, I think it, that's kind of, Is I that mean, the root of it? Just I that- bet, I like to, might be part of it. I'm thinking about society where at the upper end, you have kids yeah. that maybe later on get into drugs yep. and or go to therapy as adults because yep. my parents made a ton of money. We didn't have to worry about food, but they were gone all the time. They were mm-hmm. busy. They were working. I was raised by the yeah. nanny. At every level of society, there are people mm-hmm. that would go, that wasn't right. right. I, I wasn't raised yep. the right way or, or right. the way I would have preferred, mm-hmm. but the low end, it the choices don't exist. Like, right. okay, your nanny raised you, but with food yep. and with a roof right. over your head. And, yeah. And at least that person cared about you. Right. Yeah. So it's, and when we talk a lot about like the intergenerational um, history of trauma. So like if um, a person had parents who had substance use difficulties and so as a six-year-old they grew up taking care of their two-year-old sister and making sure she had food and making sure that you know like she was shielded from domestic violence or from whatever else was happening in the family then essentially that six-year-old feels like well I'm responsible for someone besides me and it's kind of like taking on adult roles really early Mm -hmm. and then it can be really really hard when they get to school and they can't make their own rules because they've been making their own rules ever since oh, sure. they were little because they couldn't trust the adults that they were living with to keep them safe. And so even if the adult said like, hey, um, come over here in the bathroom and you're like, mm, actually, there's there's some meth cooking in there, so I'm not going to do that. You <laughs> yeah. know, when I was that studying. keeps you safe. And having that ability to know like, nah, yeah, you want me to do that, but that doesn't feel safe to me. So kids from an early age just have that intuition, like start making those... Well, they have to depend on themselves, which Mm -hmm. is really, really sad because then they can't... It's so hard for them 
to depend on others because that's something they haven't experienced. And then by the time they get to school, when you're supposed to trust your teachers and, you know, for them to keep you safe and listen and follow directions, the kids that have been doing it all for themselves look like they're independent, defiant. Um, yeah. Then they, you know, might have a tantrum because it's like, my life is falling apart. What are you talking about? I'm not following your direction, but adults haven't always been safe, which of course they're saying in their head because <laughs> they're little. Yeah. Um, and then teachers get really confused because yeah, there's was, not a lot of education for that either. I was starting to say, like, when I was subbing, you know, you have these the system exists yeah. as a sub you're you're there's a part of you that like well i want to be able to try you just can't right. the, yeah. you trust a child to, i'm just gonna run to the bathroom real quick yeah someone shows up with them and goes you know this one was down the hall throwing things right like, yeah oh, i was trusting you right so yeah. then the system has to become no you need to pass no right. you can't get out of your seat until i tell you right and i remember specifically a 11 12 maybe fifth or sixth yeah. grade a girl doing something in class and as she was walking back to her seat i kind of asked like hey why did you and she just looked over her shoulder with this like the look in her eyes said because this doesn't matter like it, it was just very and I, I remember seeing that look and being like yeah all right and just <laughs> right. pushing and then i don't know the relation when i saw this but i was and it wasn't the same person, but I was walking to school one day. Yeah. And so some schools have like parking for yep. teachers, others I'd park down the street. Yep. I'm walking down the block and I hear this house with what sounds like 15 kids of varying ages yeah. making all different types of noises. Yep. And this heavily like, you know, like an iron door mm-hmm. with a lot of like, you know, the grate on it yeah. swings open. And a girl, like 12, mm-hmm. has a baby on her hip and she's sending another kid out the door. Right. Yep. And like her look on her face kind of just had everything on it where right. I walked out like oh yeah oh that's this explains a lot right this is and so I made me think of that girl in class that was like dude when I'm home I'm doing some stuff that matters a lot more right than yeah sharpening my pencil when you tell me to or <laughs> right. not right <laughs> and so I think too then I mean all people like we learn from our past experiences and that's kind of what we base our future interactions with others on. And I think so like teachers that have had interactions with children where they're like, oh, well, they're just bad or they're just naughty or that kind of a thing have a harder time or could have a harder time like opening their mind to other possibilities and thinking about, well, actually like it's not that he's bad. It's that when his mom asks him to do things like if he I don't know I can't even think of an example but you know like at home if he's told to do something or he doesn't do something or limits let's take that like if a teacher's like nope okay this is the limit they might not understand limits because limits can be so fluid at home and so like being like nope this is your last chance and then the child tantruming because that doesn't happen barely at all mm-hmm. are really high but then it also looks like well you're just a pain in the butt like yeah. what are you doing yeah. come on it's school follow the rule <laughs> but but it's hard to encompass new ideas and new thoughts like that when you've been working for 40 years as a teacher and yeah you know that kind of a thing is the kid more malleable because there's that plasticity in their brain so like the kid that's freaking out because like whoa you're putting limits on me and i didn't i've never been exposed to this yeah by let's do two weeks of gradually 
increasing what was no limit to like, okay, only go to here or only color at this time or only whatever the thing is you want to do. Do they slowly start? To, are we just assimilating everyone to like, you know, pretty soon they're marching in line and just like <laughs> being a little robot? I, I think when you have kids that are having those tough experiences at home, it can be really difficult to pinpoint that as a teacher or like a physician or anyone that's kind of on the front lines of seeing kids. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like the teacher's like, oh, you had a tantrum, you need to go to therapy, mm -hmm. that kind of a thing. Yeah. But if there are multiple tantrums, then they might be like, hey, therapy might be helpful. And then also, depending on the family, a lot of times families aren't like, hey, let's talk about our emotions, especially if there's substance use substance use in the home you mm -hmm. know things like that it's not like the police are good it's like be quiet don't tell the police anything because we have we don't talk to anyone like this is what we keep at home yeah and that kind of a thing so i think they can get used to the limits and a lot of times it'll be getting used to the limits at school and then having a really hard time at home mm -hmm. if they start setting limits finally yeah. and trying to stick with them because Whenever you set a limit, it gets, the behaviors get bigger and worse because they're looking for you to give in. Really? Yes. So is that like an inherent thing in all children? Well, I mean, it's like pushing, pushing the limits. And some kids have parents that are like, nope, you can't have that piece of cake. And the kid's like, ah, and then they throw a tantrum and the parent is so, can be so like, whether it's overcome or stressed or overwhelmed by not knowing what to do or it could be a million things. But then they're like, ah, okay, fine. Eat the piece of cake. I don't even care anymore. Mm -hmm. You're setting up essentially like just do something bigger and louder, mm -hmm. bigger and louder and be more annoying and I'll give in. Yeah. And so if you do that over and over and over and over and over and then decide that you're going to set limits and follow the limits, you're going to have ginormous tantrums <laughs> before you get to that point of, oh, they're not giving in this time because they're used to, okay, well, I'm just going to throw a fit and then I'll get to eat the cake. And if the parent just keeps doing that, it's, setting, it's really like setting the limit in the moment and having that tantrum is hard. Yeah. And also, I don't think people understand that when then when you give in, it makes it harder for you down the line. <laughs> Yeah, because I hear, you know, we know so many people that have children and, like, a variety of resources where yes. whether it's, like, we have all the time we need uh -huh. and we can stay up all night and sleep isn't critical. Other people that are, like, if if our kid decides they want to do this, mm -hmm. we kind of just go, yeah, go for it. We need some sleep. Right. Yeah. And so all these different levels of giving in, yeah. do they, they just come home to roost someday? Mm, I think... It's a balance. Mm -hmm. Or you just get lucky that a kid like, yeah, I don't want to push limits anymore. I've just grown out of it. Possibly. I think <laughs> that's probably less likely mm -hmm. because as you have, you know, two and three-year-olds growing into like five and six-year-olds, the whole kind of stage there is trying to individuate from your parents and that's why you kind of get the no's in at like yeah. two or three like no yeah. they might still do it but they say no like no I'm gonna be my own person I yeah. I want to do what I want to do yeah yeah and then that's kind of when well you, you can't really do what you want to do right now because cr running across the street when there are cars coming is just not an option <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like oh 
I actually, I can say whatever I want. No. <laughs> and so they're becoming, learning how to become their own person um, and become separated. We call it like individuating from the parent. Mm-hmm. Like, no, I'm my own person. But also, you know, if the parent's not there or doesn't say like, no, you can't run across the street because that's not safe. Mm-hmm. It, you know, then also kids can feel like they have all the power, like, and that can be really scary for kids too. Like, oh, I'm in charge. Like, what yeah. two-year-old wants to be in charge of their life when they, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Man, that. The I mean, I keep thinking about like the idea of govern, not governing, but just we're a society and we're trying to mm-hmm. establish rules for ourselves. Yep. And then, but whenever you talk about like the best way to operate a society, people people go, oh, I don't want to talk politics as yep. if they're intertwined. Yeah. But I feel like, and to a certain degree they are because we vote on yeah, those things right? like, to say, yeah, that's a lot more money for this. Mm-hmm. On one hand, people could go, well, it's, you got to just make as much as you can and then if you, when mm-hmm. you do, you can, you are responsible for providing for your offspring. Yep. Other people might say, you know, there are just unexpected hardships and let's mm-hmm. all set aside a little bit. I know like when I was in the education field, everyone had an opinion and I would just be like, there just aren't enough people helping. There aren't mm-hmm. enough volunteers after school. The, yeah. That's why the class sizes are so big. That just yeah. We haven't made it enticing enough for, for teachers. But like what you're doing, are you seeing, is, is there a certain socioeconomic level where you go, we need a little bit more, we need more resources to do this to provide so that we can lift up this bottom end? Or do you get people coming in that are like, money's not an option or not a, a problem. It's just, we, we don't know what's going on here. I think for me, I'm in a community mental health setting, which changes it a little because mm-hmm. it's not a hospital um, or like a hospital system. And so it's mostly... Um, it's people from the community and and so I think it that skews my personal perspective a little bit by not being in a I guess agency that's more well well funded because you know in hospitals and things like that like the orthopedic department can offset the psychiatric department's losses because mm-hmm. you know with um people who have severe and persistent mental illness, it can be really difficult to get to appointments, to, um, you know, remember to come and fill your prescriptions and all that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think also, like, it's difficult to make enough money to keep afloat if you're doing primarily mental health services. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of different ways that you have to think about providing services and that kind of a thing. Yeah, because you're intertwined with that person's insurance or lack thereof, yep. the, how much the state is going to allot or help you to like, oh, they yep. didn't show up and they don't have insurance, right. but we all yep. know they need help. Right. So how do we do that? Yes. So it's it's a little different Yeah. in a community mental health setting. Um, and I've never really been in... A hospital setting or clinic setting like that and mm-hmm. so I think probably my perspective is skewed from that point mm-hmm. but um, 
Yeah, I think it's hard to say, though. Is that the field you, or the style you want to stay in, do you think? Or are you up for changing? Um, Right now, there's no other place that I could do what I do in Duluth, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and I might, I probably won't stay in Duluth my entire life, but for right now, I really like what I do. And, and would you say that is, so you say, you know, your undergrad social work, yep. the master's, but I think of you more as like a child psychologist. Yeah. I mean, kind of, so my job title is like psychotherapist. Okay. So, which just means talk therapist. So mm-hmm. there are multiple ways to get to being a therapist. You can, um, so if you go the psychology route, you have to get your PhD in order to do therapy. Okay. In social work. You only have to get your master's to be able to do therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also, you can also go, there's like a school clinical counselor, which you can have like an undergrad in psychology and then a master's in, I think it's school counseling or clinical counseling or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the marriage and family therapy track. And I don't, I think that's maybe an undergrad of psychology and then a master's. And so there are multiple ways you can get there. Um, And I chose social work because people I had worked with were social workers. And um, really, I didn't want to go to school to like all the way to my PhD in order to do therapy because I've known that's what I wanted to do for a long time. Mm -hmm. And um, also, I did my research and looked at like what would the most marketable like letters after my name be and <laughs> LICSW was was it so um and that's licensed something licensed, like social work licensed independent clinical social worker ah it's different in every state though oh okay yeah and then it, when you have that when you're finally doing it yeah what's your favorite part like talking with the kids to talking with the family um I think one of my favorite parts is when I'm talking with the parents and they're like oh that makes so much sense like I'm just giving them information that I talk about literally every single day and they're like what <laughs> that's amazing you got a I, had, okay. I had no idea <laughs> um and then also, I think another thing that I really like is when, so a lot of kids, it, it looks like they're ignoring you, but they're listening to every single, single thing you say. Yeah. And it can be really hard for, for parents to re- realize and understand that even though they're over there playing, like they hear everything I'm saying. Yeah. And so it's also kind of fun when they are like, well, but what's good? And I'm like, yep, yep, we'll just keep going and then I usually say something like I know that you're way over there playing but I also know that lots of kids listen to me when I'm talking so I'm just going to keep talking to your mom over here and you can keep playing and then they come back and the parents like she told her dad everything you said in that session she went home and just went boom 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 everything it didn't look like she was listening or anything and she got everything yeah and so that's pretty cool too because i know they're listening but then the parents kind of like i don't know and then when they go home and like regurgitate all the information for their other parent then the one parent's like 
dude. How? When does that transfer from being like it's common to uh, like you can kind of bank on this? You can count on that because if you're if you're teaching a class and you're like, just so you know, even if a child has headphones on and they're staring at the wall, <laughs> banging on drums, they hear everything. And then you'd be like, uh, okay, I'm gonna, t-, you know. It, yeah, I think it depends, but because. I frequently work with a lot of kids that have experienced trauma, like hypervigilance and being really aware of their surroundings and what's going on around them is frequently something that they deal with. Mm -hmm. And also, um, I think the playing, so avoidance can also be big. Like, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to do what you're doing. I don't want to, you know, like acknowledge you, but I'm going to be over here and play because that actually helps kids regulate their emotions Mm -hmm. by playing. They have something else to do. So they're mitigating their own emotions by going over and playing. And so usually they're listening and usually I know they're just kind of being they're probably being avoidant, although maybe they just really don't want to listen to me. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if I think it's they just really don't want to listen to me, then I'll be like, hey, can you tell me what I just said? And then usually they can tell me. And if they can't, then I'll say it again. That yeah. kind of a thing. That's cool. I like that. I mean, do they ever, you know, they're over in the corner playing with toys and, and almost aggressively like, oh, I don't need to hear this. And then maybe the second or third session, they come a little closer, and pretty soon they're sitting there just listening to you. Does that ever happen? I, I don't... Is that too romantic? I think that might be a little romantic. Um, I think it's a lot of... Um, when I get some older kids, too, that have experienced trauma within relationships early on, like, I'll get a lot of... Um, shut up, you're stupid, don't talk to me, that kind of a thing. And do you instantly know, like, oh, I know where they're picking up this language? Uh, It's not that as much as it is, like, that, he's being avoided and he really doesn't want to hear what I'm saying right now, Mm -hmm. which means I need to keep saying it because gradual exposure is me talking about it even when he's having big feelings. And so it's being able to... Did you say big feelings? Big feelings. That's what I call (laughs) them. It's being able to... Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah. It's being able to balance what you know about this client and what you know about their symptoms. And some clients I've been working with for literally years. And Mm -hmm. so... Because it's just that difficult to get the emotional regulation piece and then to get, like, the trauma piece and things like... you got to go really slow sometimes. And so how well do you know them? How often have they done that before, if at all? And Mm -hmm. they're pretty much... Most of the time, there are times where kids are like, I hate coming here. And I'm like, you know, I don't really like coming to work either. But that's how it goes. And then, or like, you're stupid. Yep, I know lots of kids call me stupid because they really don't like doing the stuff they have to do when they're here. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. You can think I'm stupid. And we're going to keep going because if I didn't know that this worked for kids, we wouldn't be doing it. So now it's time to do this because this is what we need to do. That's great. I mean, I wonder if just on a level, them saying that as they know it's a trigger, they're used to getting at least a bristle. And so to yeah, see someone respond. Probably, yeah. And that's gotta like, be. And then some, some parents, I completely understand that some parents are like, oh my gosh, he doesn't mean it. It's like he <laughs> does And I'm like, you know, I hear it all the not maybe not all day every day but i hear it frequently like yeah. you're mean i hate you i'm gonna tell my mom on you i'm gonna tell her you made me clean up all the toys like <laughs> these things they're like you know like they just want me to not make them clean up the toys and i'm like yep yeah, you can tell your mom 
please clean up the toys. Like, <laughs> we can wait. I've got time. <laughs> like, That's great. I know people, uh, a friend of mine recently was like, yeah, the, what we really, really focus on doing, because a kid says something just sometimes to push your buttons yes. or you're, you've just had it. You've worked all day. Yep. You're tired. Right. And now your kid's being a punk and you get where a parent would be like, lose their cool mm-hmm. and they feel terrible about it yes but she was like we make a point to get down on their level yep is that something that you would say to a parent where it would be like revelatory where they go oh mm, I think more things like the thing I said about like when they play that's actually them trying to regulate their emotions mm-hmm. like that for parents can be huge like oh my gosh they're always playing when I'm trying to talk to them about hard stuff that's yeah. awesome okay so now I know what he's doing or um, other things like that. Oh, okay. Um, so not exactly like get on their level. Although sometimes that's relevatory for some parents. Um, because, yeah, like it's scary. Things can be scary that you don't realize or try to make scary, but they can appear scary to, you know, two-year-old or three-year-old yeah. because, well, they're little and you're big. Yeah. How often do they get it wrong where... So the, the kid playing... If I'm a parent and I notice that and maybe I try to make the conclusion and I, I come into you and I go, I think it's okay because every time I'm doing this, the child starts doing this behavior. Mm-hmm. Are there ever times where you're like, oh, that's terrible. You don't want them doing that every time. You're, if you're trying to get them to eat and every time they're doing this, that's bad. You, you want them to be... I think, personally, I typically try to get to highlight the most positive things I'm seeing because a lot of the parents that I see don't see the positives in their child because they've I mean they know they're there but also the other professionals they're working with might be like yeah well he never sits still in school and so I'm always telling him to you know like sit still and be quiet and stop talking and and so when I can find things that are genuinely positive qualities because I'm not going to be like, oh, look, he's a great cleaner when there's so much <laughs> stuff all over the floor that it's like, uh-huh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> um, it's more like I try to highlight the positives. We do talk about negatives. I'm not saying we don't. But also, like, if you start with positives too, people can be more get more comfortable or you can start to build more of a relationship with yeah. positives because if I'm like yeah um you know that thing you did and that thing you did and that thing you did like that's shitty don't do it anymore uh-huh. they're not going to come back right and they're not going to feel good about their parenting and it's hard enough to come in to therapy I mean therapy still has a big enough like this kind of stigma, stigma yeah. especially for kids, mm-hmm. especially for really, really little kids. And so I don't want them to leave and be like, oh, God, that was a horrible idea. I just had this professional telling me that I'm shitty at parenting. Yeah. I don't want to go back there. Yeah. And so it's like creating a partnership with the parents and getting them on board for treatment and understanding the importance of it. And, and so, and that's not trickery. You're not trying to no. get them on your side. That's no, just, it's it's a like, yep, we're gonna work on those things that you want to work on, and we're gonna work on these things too because these things actually lead to less of this. Yeah, and here's how the success or the progression must feel really good. This is 
I, I think anytime people compare two different species, it always seems really uh, like dismissive and or insulting flat out. But like we I came home one day and there was just this dog in the living room. My mom was like, oh, I went to this yep. shelter thing and this dog was available. And I was like, oh, great. She looked like the Simpsons dog. So we were just like, this is great. It looks like Simpsons will help her. But she would cower. And uh-huh. we were like, oh, sorry. Hey. You know. Yep. She was about one, I would guess, at the time. Yep. And had suffered some trauma, some level yep. of abuse. So from then, for the next 13 years or so, we would always gently pet her. Uh-huh. And still, when the phone would ring and we'd jump up to run and get it, she'd cower as if we were yep. going to beat the life out of her. Yes. And we would be like come on it's been 10 years we've never in any way harmed you does that you know when you see the progression great but is there ever a time where you're like i don't think this is gonna shake out well so when when trauma happens there are actual chemicals in the brain that that change Mm -hmm. um and so for her that like jumping up when there's a loud noise must have been an adaptive coping skill at some point Mm -hmm. and so then when she was living with you guys like she didn't need it anymore but her body was in fight flight freeze because that was kind of how it was programmed for the first year and animals don't have a prefrontal cortex like we do so they can't really make meaning of their experiences Mm -hmm. it's just wired in there like whoa now that's kind yeah kind of although you know like she realized when you would pet her like nope okay they're not going to hit me but you know like a loud noise out of nowhere Mm -hmm. which a phone is basically I mean like <laughs> you don't know when it's going to ring right yeah and so like she could be sleeping and bah like <laughs> have a flashback to when she was three months old and you yeah. know somebody shot somebody or something like that you know yeah. and she was right there mm-hmm. so I don't remember what your original question no that exactly was it was, like because I was just I was thinking how sad it would be if you had the same not trajectory but like with humans you know mm-hmm. or say with the dog that like she has that tattooed on her now and as humans we have sort of tattoo removal we're like okay you're, the memory kind of it will potentially be there but yes. your ability to adapt and react to it will hopefully improve where you don't always ball up your fist or right. hit yourself or someone else or whatever right. their behaviors might yep. be and part of it is so we can't use our prefrontal cortex when our amygdala which is in the middle of our brain and is like your fight, flight, freeze center, when our amygdala is having like what I call big feelings, like you cannot connect to your prefrontal cortex, Mm -hmm. which is why so many people make really good decisions when they are in traumatic situations <laughs> or things like that like if you're really really mad you might like punch a wall and break your hand mm-hmm. it's because you're not using your prefrontal cortex yeah you're just mad you're not thinking <laughs> like oh what would be the best way for me to show i'm mad right now it's just like no i'm mad punch yeah. oh my gosh that was really not a good idea <laughs> and so basically what i help do in my work is help gradually gradually help kids think about situations they were in whether they were situations that they have a actual memory for or situations that occurred when they were Mm pre-verbal because those experiences actually affect them and continue to affect them and so getting used to talking about all that stuff and then being able to use your prefrontal cortex and make meaning of those things yeah 
Well, I want to... I mean, I think we're getting... Yeah, we should probably take a little bit of... How are you liking this summer shandy? It is amazing. This Castle Danger Cream Ale also. I forgot how much I like this. I think mm-hmm. the term cream ale, when I hear it a lot, I'm like, yeah. sounds too much like a root beer or something. It does. But it's not really what it sounds like. It's really good. Um, but we we teased it and didn't get to it, The going back to yes. your story. And I think that ties into where we are kind of leaving off with the brain mm-hmm. and some questions about... Uh, that as well. So we'll take a little break and then pick it back up. Sure. Well, I know we teased to it, but we didn't quite have time. Come back for part two. And we'll get further into um, kind of the, the origin story of Rebecca and, and her own sort of dealings with, um, um, I guess, mental illness, trauma, things like that. And um, he, to listen to her, you wouldn't even, wouldn't even know that she had gone through any of those sort of things. She's just... Um, a delightful person to chat with, and uh, and yet when you when you hear her backstory, you'll be like, whoa, this, she had a, she had a lot going on early on in life. And I always like when you meet people like that when you're when you're sort of surprised. That, like I watched an interview with uh, Jay Z recently on the David Letterman Netflix thing, and uh, shocking how what his backstory was and how he was able to overcome it. And I love when people do that, and everyone's got their own different style or different meaning of what that is come back and check it out in part two thanks to those of you who support the show on patreon the show goes a lot more smoothly thanks to those people who do help it's made possible by contributions from listeners just like you even if it's just a couple bucks a month 50 cents a week helps with uh music and beer and all of the uh hosting fees and things like that that go along with websites and podcasts and just um technical devices and whatever else so thank you very much those of you who do support the show that way try to keep it ad free so it's just a nice pleasant listening experience i hope you enjoy it thanks for listening let's get out of here i hope you had a nice fourth of july weekend celebrating our independence and what we strive to become as a nation every year hopefully getting a little better a little closer learning from our mistakes and remembering that the the dream that it was birthed out of still exists for those of you who are on the most optimistic side. So hopefully, go out there, be your best, and um, we'll have something good to show for. Uh, Here's some music from the Wild Feathers. It's called Got It All Wrong. I hope you like it. Thanks for stopping by the Space Gate.
got on 